At Woodside Bible Church, we gather weekly to pursue God by studying His Word together. How can Christians find the motivation necessary to overcome the challenges of our modern culture and continue the mission that God has called us to? In Revelation, All Things New, we'll discover a glorious description of the end of all things and the great kingdom to come. It's here we find motivation for our present challenges. Join us as we look to the end and find hope and strength for our mission in the present. Can we give God praise this morning, maybe with a hand clap of praise? Hallelujah. And get that out of the way so I don't knock over the elements while I'm preaching. That would be a faux pas, huh? Uh, I'm, I'm really grateful to be here, really excited to be here. Uh, as Joe said, I am excited. Um, so if I yell, just like go like this, say slow down, take it easy. That's a little bit too much. It's early in the morning at the holiday weekend. I'm really grateful that Dan is back. I do have the, the privilege of serving uh, as a pastor in our missions department, um, which I was going to wait and see if Dan was here or not, if the team got back before I let you know what I do for my normal day job, that the team went out, they got back, they had fun. Hallelujah. So again, my name is Ryan Russell. I serve as our short-term missions pastor here at Woodside. I'm on the teaching team and just really, really excited to be here with you today to celebrate communion, to offer worship to our King, and to hear from the Word of God together. Now, it's a holiday weekend, and I'm uh, going to be mindful of time. Dan told me that the Pickerel Fest happens this weekend. Any amens for the Pickerel Fest? Any amens for Jesus? Yeah. Yeah, good. All right, we're in the right spot to, then together today. We're here together, ready to give praise, glory, and honor to Jesus. So why don't we go ahead, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week in verse 9. So Revelation 21, verse 9. And as you're turning there, uh, we're, we're talking about the new heaven and new earth. We're talking about this new Jerusalem. We're talking about the end of all things. And I've seen something that's been pretty common in my personal experience with believers in line with um, this idea of a theological term called inaugurated eschatology. That means like already, not yet. So already, not yet, kingdom of God we're in, and we thank God that Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God with his coming but there's this term of inaugurated eschatology that means it's also kind of the beginning of the end of the already not yet end times. And it's this idea that when spun inappropriately can be pretty unhealthy for our hearts. This idea of heaven can wait, right? That we want to get all our good stuff right here, right now. Things that are only promised to us in heaven, but we're saying, no, I'd like all that right now. Why can't we just have peace right now? Because we're not in heaven. Why can't we just have fullness of joy right now all the time? because we're not in heaven. And that's why this was written, to give us something to look forward to, to say, yeah, we, we wish that we could have it right now, but we can't have it all right now because we're not in heaven. We're still here on the earth. And as I was reading for this message, I came across a book on my shelf written by a guy named Dave Hunt, and uh, the book is called Whatever Happened to Heaven. And I want to read a couple quotes uh, from that book to kind of paint that picture a little bit more about like we're not just trying to get everything good right here, right now, because it won't come. We have to wait for something greater. Let me, let me read a couple quotes from this book, from Whatever Happened to Heaven. He says this, The heavenly-minded Christian has no desire to return to an earthly paradise. It was in that perfect environment that sin entered the world, so it's quite obvious that a return to that idyllic state would be of no lasting benefit. Thus, it is a terrible reduction of Christianity to say that the salvation, of Christ, the salvation Christ procured merely puts us back in the place of Adam. The church looks beyond the earthly restoration of Eden's paradise, the eternal kingdom into which sin can never enter. 
We have to have something to look forward to. While we bemoan and say, ah, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, but it's not perfect yet. It's not as good as it will be. So we can't have all of our desires and designs fixed on getting things that are only promised in heaven here on earth. And if you've been with us, we've been going through the sermon series in the last four chapters of the scriptures, the last four chapters of the book of Revelation called All Things New. How many of you are waiting for God to make all things new? Maybe by a show of hands. How many of you by a shout of amen are hoping that God will make all things new, maybe a little bit more quickly than later? Amen? Amen. amen. We skipped ahead to the end so we can see how the story ends. And that's helpful for us because as you're going through the difficulties, Knowing how it all ends is something that's going to hold us, right? I, I preached um, a few weeks ago, Revelation 19, and I talked about this great Christmas movie, Die Hard, right? You guys know the Christmas movie, Die Hard, right? We know how it ends, but still you have like the palpitations of heart when stuff goes a little bit wild. But that's why we go to the end so we can see how it all ends and we can have peace and hope and a staying joy in our hearts to know how it's going to turn out. But these chapters at the end of the scriptures, at the end of the book of Revelation, aren't just there to tell us how it all ends, aren't just there to inform us how it all ends. The, the genre that was written in the book of Revelation is a, is a weaving of prophetic literature, which means something from heaven telling something on earth of what's going to happen, or apocalyptic literature. There's narrative, there's letters that were written, there's all different kinds of uh, of literary devices in the book of Revelation, and that's why it's not just information, it's calling us to hope for something. It's calling us to wait for something. John, the apostle who was given this vision, is writing to a, a Christian church that is undergoing deep persecution. At the time of the Roman emperor, Empire, under the, the emperor Nero, where Christians are being persecuted for being Christians. Nero was uh, a little bit off his rocker and even lit his own city on fire so that he could blame it on Christians, so that people would hate Christians. So Christians were undergoing deep persecution and oppression. That's why the hope of something greater in the future was so important to hold us in the here and now when everything's not yet perfect to know that all things will be made new one day. So whenever that's the case, when our hearts are sad, when we don't feel hope, we need this. We need a beatific vision. We need a beautiful vision of something that we know is coming. And we can know that we know that we know it's coming to hold us in the here and now. And that's why God gave John this vision, specifically called a revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's what we've been doing throughout this sermon series called All Things New, is getting to this final vision, getting to this culminating vision. We're going to wrap the sermon series up next week, so we're going to be in Revelation 21, starting in verse 9, and go through chapter 22, verse 5, to get a view of this new heaven and new earth, to get a view of this new Jerusalem, this city coming down from heaven from God. And ultimately, what we want to see today, just today, is how this vision, this beautiful vision of what is not here yet but is to come, will motivate us to long for and live to enter the city of God, to long for with a deep hope and live to, right here, right now, to enter the city of God. That's our big idea. So we want to figure out uh, why should we long for this city? What, why should we live for this city? What makes it so glorious and what makes it so special? And thank you for asking. That's exactly what we're going to spend the next 30 minutes doing is talking about why this is so beautiful. So go ahead, open your Bibles if you haven't already. Revelation 21, starting in verse 9. Would you join me in a word of prayer as we go to the scriptures? 
Our Father, we want to say thanks. Thanks that we get to have communion with you and with other believers. Thank you on this weekend that uh, you have granted us the ultimate independence from sin, that we can be wholly dependent upon you for all good things. And Jesus, we thank you that you looked upon us in a state that was helpless, and you said, yes, I want him, I want her, and I'll do what it takes that we could be together again in unbroken fellowship one day. Holy Spirit of the living God, grant us eyes to see that one day from sacred scriptures right now for your glory, by your grace. In the name of Jesus, we pray all these things. Together we say amen and amen. We're going to see three things today in the scripture. If you've got your bulletin, you can see that we're going to look at the layout, the light, and the life of the city. The layout, the light, and the life of the city. And there's a lot of scripture, so I'm just going to read the entire passage right now. So it's going to be a little bit long, but uh, just pay attention, follow along in your Bible. The words will be on the screen behind me, but we're going to read all of the scripture right now so that we can really feel it all together, and it's not chopped up and chunky for us. So Revelation 21, verse 9 through 22, verse 5 says this, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on its west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the, of the Lamb. Verse 15, and the one who spoke to me, the one who spoke with me, had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. Its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. 
No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. As we see the layout of the city of God, we're given this incredible, beautiful, detailed description and vision. And I think two W words come to mind right away. The first thing when I read that is like, wow, that sounds amazing. That sounds beautiful. The next W word is, what does any of that mean? <laughs> like, what am I supposed to understand from all this? There's these, these walls and these measurements and these jewels and all this stuff that sounds really nice, but what does it mean? Now, we don't have time to go through every single detail today. We'll let Pastor Dan do all that next week. Um, but, but it's super important for us to have a, a healthy overlay of what's going on here, right? Revelation 21, 22, really the entirety of the book of Revelation, the majority of it is an allusion back to the Old Testament. So what's in mind here is Genesis 2, is Ezekiel 40 through 48, is Isaiah 60, all these kind of coming together helps us to get a vision of, of what's really going on here as we look at the layout of the city. And as we made our way to verse 9, finishing off from verse 8 last week, where we see the new heaven and the new earth, we get kind of the second portion of this final vision that was given to John, the bride, the wife of the lamb. And there's this contrast of kind of this previous city or woman that was looked at in Revelation 17, 18, and the beginning of 19, Babylon, the kingdom of this world, the city of this world that kings and countries and nations brought their glory into only to be defeated by the lamb. And now we see that contrast of this new city, this beautiful city, the bride, the wife of the lamb coming down from heaven, and it is Jesus's. It is the lamb's bride, and it is us, friends. And it's so exciting to us. So as we kind of go through this description, verses 10 through 21, we get this beautiful description of what's going on. And there's three things we need to see from this description, right? It says the angel uh, that was carrying one of the, the bowls of the seven plagues brings John up to this high mountain so he can see what's going on. And it says he sees this new Jerusalem, the holy Jerusalem coming down. And there's these points that are important for us to understand. What does the new Jerusalem have in it or about it? Why does it matter? Why is the layout important? First, because it has the glory of God. Anytime you see something having the glory of God, you need to pause and you need to say, what does this mean? Why does this matter to me? It's the same language used from Revelation chapter 4 when John gets another vision of the throne of God. He gets sort of an invitation to look in. Now it's coming out to him. He gets an invitation to look in at the throne of God from chapter 4 and uses kind of the same words, that there is this, this glory of God. It looks like jasper. It looks like carnelian. It looks like emerald, which are beautiful gemstones uh, for any men out there that don't know what those words mean. Uh, they are beautiful, precious gemstones, okay? Uh, and he says, I saw it on the throne of God. Now it permeates the city. Now I see the glory of God all over in this city. So the first thing is it has the glory of God. The second thing about this city, the layout we need to see, is that it's secured and it's structured, that this city faces no threat any longer. So there's all these talks about the gates and the walls, and they're high, and it's a perfect cube, and, and we'll get into what all that means at some point. But cities at the time of John's writing would have had high gates and high walls for really one primary purpose, to keep enemies out, to keep people out who would try to sack the city or take things over or steal things from the city. But this city is completely secured and completely structured 
Why? Because you saw a couple weeks ago, this city has no more enemies left. This city has nothing that can attack it anymore. This city where we will dwell, those who have called on Christ by grace through faith for their hope, for their future, this is where we will be, this is who we are, this is where we will dwell, and there will be no more enemies to attack us ever again. It's beautiful to see that. And John talks about the, the 12 names of the sons of the tribe of Israel, the 12 names of the apostle of the Lamb, and there's kind of this, this um, literary device being used, similar to when Jesus says the law and the prophets, and he's sort of saying all of the Old Testament, all, all of the Hebrew Bible can be summarized by this. When John is seeing this vision from the angel, and you see the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel and the 12 apostles of the Lamb, you see God's people all kind of being brought together, that it's a literary device being used to say, this is all of us. This is God's people. This is everybody God has won through the death of his son, covenanted to be his people forever. So it's secure, and it's structured, and we're in there, and we're safe with the glory of God. The third thing we see from 10 through 21 is that God is there. God is there. That's enough for us. It's the holy of holies being uh, flooding all of creation. It's really the only other place you see this perfect cube show up in Scripture was inside of the temple, the holy of holies, where God's presence was mediated to his people. Now he's saying there's this city coming down out of heaven, and God's glory is in it, and it's completely safe and structured and secure for God's people. And the most important part, God is there, mediating his presence. So this perfect place, this beautiful city, as we get to see the, the gemstones and all these different things, why? Why does this matter? Like, what, What's the intention of this, of the writer? And I think there's really one primary thing in mind, you know, to give us hope, but to give us hope by giving us a vision of something beautiful, of something precious, of something that we might see as perfection. So when you think about the perfect place or the perfect city or a precious place to you, what comes to mind? You know, is it uh, a beach in Tahiti? Is it the, the mountains of British Columbia? Is it the Pickerel Festival at Algonac, right? Is it, uh, there, there's a, a town where my folks live in southern Illinois called Carterville, Illinois, um, and there's not a whole lot like precious about that city other than my parents are there and they were raised there and many of my family members are buried there and when my wife and I go down there, it's just like, huh, it's like just slower and precious and we feel safe there. So what comes to mind when you think of the precious place in your life or the perfect place in your life or the place where you feel completely safe and maybe you experience some of the glory of God, a place that feels like home, a place that maybe you're even like salivating or dreaming or emailing your boss right now saying, I'm going on vacation next week. I got to get out of here to go to this place. That place, whatever's in your mind, is like the, the smells of a beautiful meal that you're going to get to eat one day. It like scratches the surface of the most precious, the most perfect, the most holy, the most beautiful place that we could ever imagine the safest place will ever be. That's why the layout of the city is important. So the second thing we see that's important as we're continuing on to see why we should long to and live to, long for and live to enter this city of God after the layout is the light of this city. So John talks about the light of this city when he, he continues on in his description. And we're looking uh, at verses 22 through 27 right now. So that was uh, John 
excuse me, uh, Revelation 21, 9 through 21 was kind of the first point. 22 through 27 is where we're looking at the second point. And John goes on to talk about this city. But he does something a little different and, and kind of interesting when he talks about the city here now. He doesn't talk about what's in it. He doesn't talk about the beauty of it anymore. He talks about something being absent from it. He says, this city has no temple. Now, for us, that might not sound like something that's a huge deal to us. Um, but the temple, at the time of John's writings, were the places where God or a God, and every city in the Roman Empire or of the world at the time of John's writing had some temple dedicated to some God or another where the people could go and experience their God, where they could go and offer sacrifices and receive what they thought was blessings from their God. So John's saying, this city, this holy city, this beautiful city has no temple in it. And, and at first glance, I think that should feel a little strange to us, but then when you realize, why does it have no, no temple in it? Because it doesn't need a temple anymore. Because it is the fullness of God's presence dwelling with us, dwelling with his people. As Joe alluded to in, in communion, it, that God has now made his dwelling place with man. The Lord's glory and presence fills everything. His glory pervades everything. There's not even a need for the sun or the moon anymore. Why? Because it's bright because of the lamb is there. The lamp of the city is the lamb. The glory of the Lord is its light. And we don't need anything artificial anymore. We don't have to try to light up the dark spots in our life anymore when we're in this city. We're there with God. And everything is a light. And everything is alive. And everything is perfect. And everything is holy. It says the nations bring their glory into this city. What does that mean? What does it mean when the nations bring their glory into the city? I, I think it, it, it kind of means that John is saying nothing of beauty will be missing from this city. So the nations usually represents like all of people, right? Everybody. They're all bringing all their glory. So think of like the glory that's being brought from Asia, the glory that's being brought from Africa, the glory that's being brought from Europe. I don't know if like Antarctic climates are going to be in the New Jerusalem. Like I, it would be okay with me if it was like 65 and sunny in there. Um, but like all the glory, everything good that every nation has to offer is being brought into the city. That's why John is saying that, saying nothing of beauty will be lost. Even the beautiful things that you're experiencing today will be in this new city, will be in heaven. But they'll be a little bit different because they'll be incorruptible. They will never be able to be torn down. All the beauty of the old creation, which was destroyed, that's how the new heaven and earth come, is going to still be present, that there's going to be everything beautiful, everything holy, everything good is all here in a perfect and incorruptible way, and nothing can steal it from you. The openness of the gates, uh, the, the lack of night, the, the, the holiness of all that enters the city invites us to envision this place of complete holiness, invites us to envision this place of, of safety and blessing and good, actual perfection, like that city we just envisioned in our mind, but actual perfection. You know what my favorite part of this new place is? That I won't sin anymore. Not what's there, but I'll never have to experience the pain of sin in my own life anymore. And neither will you if you're there. So think about the beauty that we're being invited into as the glory and honor of the nations are brought in, that, that John's also seeing this vision with all these varied gemstones saying all people, every tribe, every language, every ethnicity, every culture, every person everywhere that calls upon the name of Jesus as Lord is there. And we're all together with no pain, 
and no fighting. Amen. <laughs> like, like that's something to get super excited about for me because I think of all of the, the limited work you have to put in to get into a fight with somebody today, right? Is it easy to get into an argument with somebody today? Right, like you could just tell them who you voted for, right? You, and, and instantly you're in a fight. You could tell them what you do or don't do, whatever. There's like this, this pervasive lack of safety that we feel, like this insecurity. That's all gone there. We see the perfect layout. We see the perfect light that we don't have to artificially light up anything ever again, that he is there. Evil is completely absent. Nothing can remove the peace, security, goodness, and holiness of this city. Think about like a, a perfect party, right? Or um, has anybody proposed to their fiance anytime soon, anytime recently? No? I've been married 13 years. Am I the, am I the, the youngest marriage in here? No? No? Some of you are smiling at me because you're like, please don't call on me. I see it. I see it in your face. Like, um, it's okay. I'm not getting, nobody's going to get called on. I'm merely trying to illustrate something in our mind, okay? I see you. It's okay. Uh, think about how meticulous everything was. The lighting, the music, the person hiding with the camera like this so they could get that perfect moment. The table's all set. Everything's perfect, right? And all the work that you've put in, all the labor that you've put in to get to that moment. And again, that's a beautiful moment in your life. Think about all the work and the labor our Lord put in so that we could be there. And it will be actually perfect. Verse 27 kind of sticks out as a, a little bit of another contrast for us, like an exhortation for us to say, uh, nothing unclean will ever come into this city. Now, why does he go on to say that? Or no one who does what is detestable or who is false can come into this city. We ought to pause and consider uh, who will be at this party, who will be in this city. And he tells us, only those whose names are written in the book of the Lamb will be here. So all this excitement and, and now sweat uh, that's coming to, to illustrate the beauty and the holiness and the perfection of this. Verse 27 exists so we can say, yeah, that sounds great. Um, will I be there? Is, is this talking about me? And if by grace through faith you've put your hope and trust in Jesus alone for the remission of sins and as your Savior, yes, hallelujah, you're going to be there. We are going to be there. It's going to be beautiful. But if you're unsure this morning or you lack certainty in you, are hearing about this beautiful party and you're wondering, am I going to get invited? Will, will I be there? You don't have to be unsure anymore. You can have surety today. You can have a guarantee today that you will be at this place. And you don't have to prepare anything of yourself to be there. You don't have to be perfect and beautiful like the city is. In fact, Jesus requires you be the opposite you be poor in spirit, messed up and humble and knowing only you can get me there. I can't do anything of my own accord to get myself there. I can't clean myself up. I don't deserve to be on that invitation. Only Jesus can write my name in this book. So if you're getting excited about this place, but maybe, and we've talked about safety and security a fair amount today, maybe you're feeling insecure, like I don't know if that's me. This all sounds nice and you know, this is kind of why I come to church and 
is he going to wrap this up soon? I, I get it. And we wonder, and I don't know if that's me. And it might be me, but I don't know if that's my child. I don't know if that's my parent. I don't know if that's my neighbor. Just like Joe said in the communion devotional, we have this beautiful opportunity to tell people about this beautiful, glorious, perfect hope out in front of us that we can bring people along with us too, simply by telling them, you don't have to have it all together. In fact, my king doesn't even like you that way. He wants you when you've got it all discombobulated and out of order, and you come and say, you're the only one who can fix this, God. You're the only one who can help me, Dad. And there's a beautiful promise in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, I won't turn anyone away who comes to me with sincere faith. If you come to me poor in spirit with sincere faith in me alone, I won't turn you away. And you can eliminate your insecurity today about if you're going to be here by believing with sincere faith that God's the only one who can do this for you. As we long for this place, as we long for this beauty, as we live to enter this city of God, sincere faith is what opens the gates to you. So we look at this layout of perfection and beauty. We look at the light and the absence of the temple because God's just there with us. And the last thing that we see today is the life of the city, that there is beautiful, glorious life in this city. So the beginning of chapter 22, the first five verses is what we're looking at where John is uh, taken to a unique spot in the New Jerusalem, this high mountain, where he can see this river of life, where he can see this water flowing. And again, this comes out in Ezekiel 47. This comes out in Genesis 2. This is all throughout the, the Old Testament, this, this river of life, this water that's flowing. And it's a little different, right, because in Genesis 2, the river uh, is, is flowing out of the garden. In Ezekiel 47, the river's flowing out of the temple and now the river's flowing out of the throne of God, all of it coming to perfect culmination, saying the river of life has one source. It's all coming from God. God in the temple garden is flowing out. God in the temple is flowing out. Now God on the throne, it's flowing out. It's all only ever come from one place. The source of this river, the source of this life only comes from one place. Like Pastor Dan said, when you see the mountain stream coming down, that is where the people went to get their water, went to get their life. They die without it. This river, clear as crystal, bright as crystal, the source of it is God. And that's what this, um, this letter is meant to do for us. Is this vision is, is meant to do for us, to show us where all this comes from. Man couldn't put it together God is the one who's been authoring it all along. God is the one from cover to cover of the scriptures has been calling us back into intimacy with him. And just again, as this, as this story begins in this temple garden and now kind of concludes in this temple garden having become perfected, that the Garden of Eden has now, uh, the, the tree of life that exists in the Garden of Eden is now here as well in the new Jerusalem. The tree of life is still here and its leaves are healing for the nations and its fruit is new every month and everything you could ever need is here. That's what all this is for to cause us to look forward to something that can help us with our insecurity today, with our hopelessness today, with the pain and trial and trauma that we all experience today. Maybe the stuff that we haven't gotten over from yesterday or a decade of yesterdays. 
to look forward to this and say, am I going? And if so, it's a cause for me to shout hallelujah. If so, it's a cause for me to look ahead with a smile on my face and say, yes, Lord, I'm coming. Say, yes, Lord, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Right? So John's vision of the city of God, we see the layout of the city, we see the light of the city, and he invites us to see the life of the city, the relational life of the city, that God's people are all with him, and he is with us. The dwelling place of God is with man. Evil and darkness, sin absent forever. Never again in our lives when we're in this place will we experience that. The holy glory of God resonating everywhere, permeating through everything. Not just the great feeling you get at church on a Sunday and you walk out through the doors and you're like, here we go. I don't know if I can make it until next Sunday. It's full of life. Why? Because God is there. There's this expectant hope, this expectant desire that we should be filled with as we see this. We like to think of heaven, right, as this perfect place. It's beautiful, it's wonderful. As my wife and I were talking about the message yesterday, I was like, a place where there's no sweat anymore. I don't know if you won't sweat in heaven, but man works by the sweat of his brow. So maybe you just don't work when you sweat, or you don't sweat when you work, I don't know. Right? But I'm grateful to not sweat, maybe. Like, I do that a lot. There's no pain, no tears, there's no sadness, and that all sounds great, but I think if we're honest, it sounds kind of unbelievable, too. We're like, yeah, that sounds nice, but it's far away, and as nice as that sounds, you don't understand how hard it is for me today. And maybe that's true. Maybe that's hard for us as we think of this wonderful place, as we think of seeing our loved ones once again, as we think of being reunited with our family and all these things. And it's, it's all things, though. And what's lacking from the description of heaven that I just gave is I think the same thing that's lacking from most descriptions of heaven that I hear. Heaven is far less about what we will do than it is about whom we will see. Jesus is there. The lover of our lives is there. The one who died for us is there. The one who's been waiting for us forever is there. It won't even matter what you do because you'll be with him. You'll see him. You'll feel the warmth of his embrace and you'll sing worship to him. And you'll be in the presence of the perfect one. Not a city that's going to corrupt. Not a thing that we do. But a person. Jesus. Power Jesus. That's what this is all about. That's what this message is all about. That we could see him again one day and he's inviting us in. So as the worship team comes back up to the stage, they're going to lead us in a song called Hymn of Heaven. It's a beautiful song to sing uh, at the end of a message like this. But I want us just to to allow this to sink in maybe just one more time, that we'll see him. That as John tries to describe the indescribable, we know we can't really feel it all out. The, the coming of this new Jerusalem transcends our experience right here and right now. And the greatest joy in heaven, the greatest joy in this new creation won't be seeing your loved ones who have passed away. That will be there and that will be great, but it will be face to face with Jesus, face to face with your Lord, face to face with the one who loves you more than anyone ever has, could, or would. I want to end with a brief quote from a, a pastor and Bible commentator named Tom Schreiner. He says this, if our hearts do not thrill at the prospect of seeing God and the Lamb, we need to know God better. We need to follow him more nearly, and we need to love him more dearly.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, in the name of Jesus, we say thank you today. Thank you so much that you've loved us. Thank you so much that you've blessed us. Thank you that if we are in you, Christ Jesus, as our Lord and Savior and as your people, you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the high places, that you have called us your own and we get to call you our own. And there's a day coming that as we encounter these difficulties here and now, as we encounter this pain here and now, there's a day coming that it will all melt away because we'll be with you. Like a child who's afraid of the dark, but when their parent is there, they experience no more fear. As we have our insecurities and hurtful histories and painful pasts and all these things that we go through, one day we're going to be with you if we've called on the name of Jesus alone for salvation, asking for our sins to be forgiven and to be in fellowship and communion with you again forever. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. We trust that you can make this true in our lives. It's for your glory alone, by your grace alone. The name of Jesus, we pray all these things. Together we say amen and amen. Would you can we give God praise this morning, maybe with a hand clap of praise? Hallelujah. And get that out of the way so I don't knock over the elements while I'm preaching. That would be a faux pas, huh? Uh, I'm, I'm really grateful to be here, really excited to be here. Uh, as Joe said, I am excited. Um, so if I yell, just like go like this. Say, slow down, take it easy. That's a little bit too much. It's early in the morning. It's a holiday weekend. I'm really grateful that Dan is back. I do have the, the privilege of serving uh, as a pastor in our missions department, um, which I was going to wait and see if Dan was here or not, if the team got back before I let you know what I do for my normal day job, that the team went out, they got back, they had fun. Hallelujah. So again, my name is Ryan Russell. I serve as our short-term missions pastor here at Woodside. I'm on the teaching team and just really, really excited to be here with you today to celebrate communion, to offer worship to our King, and to hear from the Word of God together. Now, it's a holiday weekend, and I'm uh, going to be mindful of time. Dan told me that the Pickerel Fest happens this weekend. Any amens for the Pickerel Fest? Any amens for Jesus? Yeah. Yeah, good. All right, we're in the right spot to, then together today. We're here together, ready to give praise, glory, and honor to Jesus. So why don't we go ahead, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week in verse 9. So Revelation 21, verse 9. And as you're turning there, uh, we're, we're talking about the new heaven and new earth. We're talking about this new Jerusalem. We're talking about the end of all things. And I've seen something that's been pretty common in my personal experience with believers in line with um, this idea of a theological term called inaugurated eschatology. That means like already, not yet. So already, not yet, kingdom of God we're in, and we thank God that Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God with his coming but there's this term of inaugurated eschatology that means it's also kind of the beginning of the end of the already not yet end times. And it's this idea that when spun inappropriately can be pretty unhealthy for our hearts. This idea of heaven can wait, right? That we want to get all our good stuff right here, right now. Things that are only promised to us in heaven, but we're saying, no, I'd like all that right now. Why can't we just have peace right now? Because we're not in heaven. Why can't we just have fullness of joy right now all the time? because we're not in heaven. And that's why this was written, to give us something to look forward to, to say, yeah, we, we wish that we could have it right now, but we can't have it all right now because we're not in heaven. We're still here on the earth. And as I was reading for this message, I came across a book on my shelf written by a guy named Dave Hunt, and uh, the book is called Whatever Happened to Heaven? And I want to read a couple quotes uh, from that book to kind of paint that picture a little bit more about like we're not just trying to get everything good right here, right now, because it won't come. 
we have to wait for something greater. Let me, let me read a couple quotes from this book from Whatever Happened to Heaven. He says this, the heavenly-minded Christian has no desire to return to an earthly paradise. It was in that perfect environment that sin entered the world, so it's quite obvious that a return to that idyllic state would be of no lasting benefit. Thus, it is a terrible reduction of Christianity to say that the salvation, of Christ, the salvation Christ procured merely puts us back in the place of Adam. The church looks beyond the earthly restoration of Eden's paradise, the eternal kingdom into which sin can never enter. We have to have something to look forward to. While we bemoan and say, ah, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, but it's not perfect yet. It's not as good as it will be. So we can't have all of our desires and designs fixed on getting things that are only promised in heaven here on earth. And if you've been with us, we've been going through the sermon series in the last four chapters of the scriptures, the last four chapters of the book of Revelation called All Things New. How many of you are waiting for God to make all things new? Maybe by a show of hands. How many of you by a shout of amen are hoping that God will make all things new, maybe a little bit more quickly than later? Amen? Amen. amen. We've skipped ahead to the end so we can see how the story ends. And that's helpful for us because as you're going through the difficulties, Knowing how it all ends is something that's going to hold us. Right? I, I preached um, a few weeks ago, Revelation 19, and I talked about this great Christmas movie, Die Hard. Right? You guys know the Christmas movie, Die Hard? Right? We know how it ends, but still you have like, the palpitations of heart when stuff goes a little bit wild. But that's why we go to the end, so we can see how it all ends, and we can have peace and hope and a staying joy in our hearts to know how it's going to turn out. But... These chapters at the end of the scriptures, at the end of the book of Revelation, aren't just there to tell us how it all ends, aren't just there to inform us how it all ends. The, the genre that was written in the book of Revelation is a, is a weaving of prophetic literature, which means something from heaven telling something on earth of what's going to happen, or apocalyptic literature. There's narrative, there's letters that were written, there's all different kinds of, uh, of literary devices in the book of Revelation, and that's why it's not just information. It's calling us to hope for something. It's calling us to wait for something. John, the apostle who was given this vision, is writing to a, a Christian church that is undergoing deep persecution. At the time of the Roman emperor, Empire, under the, the emperor Nero, where Christians are being persecuted for being Christians. Nero was a little bit off his rocker and even lit his own city on fire so that he could blame it on Christians, so that people would hate Christians. So Christians were undergoing deep persecution and oppression. That's why the hope of something greater in the future was so important to hold us in the here and now when everything's not yet perfect to know that all things will be made new one day. So whenever that's the case, when our hearts are sad, when we don't feel hope, we need this. We need a beatific vision. We need a beautiful vision of something that we know is coming. And we can know that we know that we know it's coming to hold us in the here and now. And that's why God gave John this vision, specifically called a revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's what we've been doing throughout this sermon series called All Things New, is getting to this final vision, getting to this culminating vision. We're going to wrap the sermon series up next week, so we're going to be in Revelation 21, starting in verse 9, and go through chapter 22, verse 5, to get a view of this new heaven and new earth, to get a view of this new Jerusalem, this city coming down from heaven 
from God. And ultimately, what we want to see today, just today, is how this vision, this beautiful vision of what is not here yet but is to come, will motivate us to long for and live to enter the city of God, to long for with a deep hope and live to, right here, right now, to enter the city of God. That's our big idea. So we want to figure out uh, why should we long for this city? What, why should we live for this city? What makes it so glorious and what makes it so special? And thank you for asking. That's exactly what we're going to spend the next 30 minutes doing is talking about why this is so beautiful. So go ahead, open your Bibles if you haven't already. Revelation 21, starting in verse 9. Would you join me in a word of prayer as we go to the scriptures? Our Father, we want to say thanks. Thanks that we get to have communion with you and with other believers. Thank you on this weekend that uh, you have granted us the ultimate independence from sin, that we can be wholly dependent upon you for all good things. And Jesus, we thank you that you looked upon us in a state that was helpless, and you said, yes, I want him, I want her, and I'll do what it takes that we could be together again in unbroken fellowship one day. Holy Spirit of the living God, grant us eyes to see that one day from sacred scriptures right now for your glory, by your grace. In the name of Jesus, we pray all these things. Together we say amen and amen. We're going to see three things today in the scripture. If you've got your bulletin, you can see that we're going to look at the layout, the light, and the life of the city. The layout, the light, and the life of the city. And there's a lot of scripture, so I'm just going to read the entire passage right now. So it's going to be a little bit long, but uh, just pay attention, follow along in your Bible. The words will be on the screen behind me, but we're going to read all of the scripture right now so that we can really feel it all together, and it's not chopped up and chunky for us. So Revelation 21, verse 9 through 22, verse 5 says this, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on its west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the, of the Lamb. Verse 15, and the one who spoke to me, the one who spoke with me, had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. Its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. 
They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. As we see the layout of the city of God, we're given this incredible, beautiful, detailed description and vision. And I think two W words come to mind right away. The first thing when I read that is like, wow, that sounds amazing. That sounds beautiful. The next W word is, what does any of that mean? <laughs> like, what am I supposed to understand from all this? There's these these walls and these measurements and these jewels and all this stuff that sounds really nice, but what does it mean? Now, we don't have time to go through every single detail today. We'll let Pastor Dan do all that next week. Um, but, but it's super important for us to have a, a healthy overlay of what's going on here, right? Revelation 21, 22, really the entirety of the book of Revelation, the majority of it is an allusion back to the Old Testament. So what's in mind here is Genesis 2, is Ezekiel 40 through 48, is Isaiah 60. All these kind of coming together helps us to get a vision of, of what's really going on here as we look at the layout of the city. And as we made our way to verse 9, finishing off from verse 8 last week, where we see the new heaven and the new earth, we get kind of the second portion of this final vision that was given to John, the bride, the wife of the lamb. And there's this contrast of kind of this previous city or woman that was looked at in Revelation 17, 18, and the beginning of 19, Babylon, the kingdom of this world, the city of this world that kings and countries and nations brought their glory into only to be defeated by the Lamb. And now we see that contrast of this new city, this beautiful city, the bride, the wife of the Lamb coming down from heaven, and it is Jesus's. It is the Lamb's bride, and it is us, friends. And it's so exciting to us. So as we kind of go through this description, verses 10 through 21, we get this beautiful description of what's going on. And there's three things we need to see from this description, right? It says the angel uh, that was carrying one of the, the bowls of the seven plagues brings John up to this high mountain so he can see what's going on. And it says he sees this new Jerusalem, the holy Jerusalem coming down. And there's these points that are important for us to understand. What does the new Jerusalem have in it or about it? Why does it matter? Why is the layout important? First, because it has the glory of God. Anytime you see something having the glory of God, you need to pause and you need to say, what does this mean? Why does this matter to me? It's the same language used from Revelation chapter 4 when John gets another vision of the throne of God. He gets sort of an invitation to look in. Now it's coming out to him. He gets an invitation to look in at the throne of God from chapter 4 and uses kind of the same words, that there's this, this glory of God. It looks like jasper. It looks like carnelian. It looks like emerald, which are beautiful gemstones uh, for any men out there that don't know what those words mean. Uh, they are beautiful, precious gemstones, okay? Uh, and he says, I saw it on the throne of God. Now it permeates the city. Now I see the glory of God all over in this city. So the first thing is it has the glory of God. The second thing about this city, the layout we need to see, 
is that it's secured and it's structured, that this city faces no threat any longer. So there's all these talks about the gates and the walls, and they're high, and it's a perfect cube, and, and we'll get into what all that means at some point. But cities at the time of John's writing would have had high gates and high walls for really one primary purpose, to keep enemies out, to keep people out who would try to sack the city or take things over or steal things from the city. But this city is completely secured and completely structured. Why? Because you saw a couple weeks ago, this city has no more enemies left. This city has nothing that can attack it anymore. This city where we will dwell, those who have called on Christ by grace through faith for their hope, for their future, this is where we will be, this is who we are, this is where we will dwell, and there will be no more enemies to attack us ever again. It's beautiful to see that. And John talks about the, the 12 names of the sons of the tribe of Israel, the 12 names of the apostle of the Lamb, and there's kind of this... this um, literary device being used, similar to when Jesus says the law and the prophets, and he's sort of saying all of the Old Testament, all, all of the Hebrew Bible can be summarized by this. When John is seeing this vision from the angel, and you see the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel and the 12 apostles of the Lamb, you see God's people all kind of being brought together, that it's a literary device being used to say, this is all of us. This is God's people. This is everybody God has won through the death of his son, covenanted to be his people forever. So it's secure and it's structured and we're in there and we're safe with the glory of God. The third thing we see from 10 through 21 is that God is there. God is there. That's enough for us. It's the holy of holies being uh, flooding all of creation. It's really the only other place you see this perfect cube show up in Scripture was inside of the temple, the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was mediated to his people. Now he's saying there's this city coming down out of heaven, and God's glory is in it, and it's completely safe and structured and secure for God's people. And the most important part, God is there mediating his presence. So this perfect place, this beautiful city, as we get to see the, the gemstones and all these different things, why? Why does this matter? Like, what, what's the intention of this, of the writer? And I think there's really one primary thing in mind, you know, to give us hope, but to give us hope by giving us a vision of something beautiful, of something precious, of something that we might see as perfection. So when you think about the perfect place or the perfect city or a precious place to you, what comes to mind? You know, is it uh, a beach in Tahiti? Is it the, the mountains of British Columbia? Is it the Pickerel Festival at Algonac, right? Is it, uh, there, there's a, a town where my folks live in southern Illinois called Carterville, Illinois, um, and there's not a whole lot, like, precious about that city other than my parents are there and they were raised there and many of my family members are buried there and when my wife and I go down there, it's just like, huh, it's like just slower and precious and we feel safe there. So what comes to mind when you think of the precious place in your life or the perfect place in your life? or the place where you feel completely safe, and maybe you experience some of the glory of God, a place that feels like home, a place that maybe you're even like salivating or dreaming or emailing your boss right now saying, I'm going on vacation next week. I got to get out of here to go to this place. That place, whatever's in your mind, is like the, the smells of a beautiful meal that you're going to get to eat one day. It like scratches the surface of the most precious, the most perfect, the most holy, the most beautiful place that we could ever imagine, the safest place we'll ever be. 
That's why the layout of the city is important. So the second thing we see that's important as we're continuing on to see why we should long to and live to, long for and live to enter this city of God after the layout is the light of this city. So John talks about the light of this city when he, he continues on in his description. And we're looking uh, at verses 22 through 27 right now. So that was uh, John, excuse me, uh, Revelation 21, 9 through 21 was kind of the first point. 22 through 27 is where we're looking at the second point. And John goes on to talk about this city. But he does something a little different and, and kind of interesting when he talks about the city here now. He doesn't talk about what's in it. He doesn't talk about the beauty of it anymore. He talks about something being absent from it. He says, this city has no temple. Now, for us, that might not sound like something that's a huge deal to us. Um, but the temple, at the time of John's writings, were the places where God or a God, and every city in the Roman Empire or of the world at the time of John's writing had some temple dedicated to some God or another where the people could go and experience their God where they could go and offer sacrifices and receive what they thought was blessings from their God. So John's saying, this city, this holy city, this beautiful city has no temple in it. And, and at first glance, I think that should feel a little strange to us, but then when you realize, why does it have no, no temple in it? Because it doesn't need a temple anymore. Because it is the fullness of God's presence dwelling with us, dwelling with his people. As Joe alluded to in, in communion, it, that God has now made his dwelling place with man. The Lord's glory and presence fills everything. His glory pervades everything. There's not even a need for the sun or the moon anymore. Why? Because it's bright because of the lamb is there. The lamp of the city is the lamb. The glory of the Lord is its light. And we don't need anything artificial anymore. We don't have to try to light up the dark spots in our life anymore when we're in this city. We're there with God. And everything is a light. And everything is alive. And everything is perfect. And everything is holy. It says the nations bring their glory into this city. What does that mean? What does it mean when the nations bring their glory into the city? I, I think it, it, it kind of means that John is saying nothing of beauty will be missing from this city. So the nations usually represents like all of people, right? Everybody. They're all bringing all their glory. So think of like the glory that's being brought from Asia, the glory that's being brought from Africa, the glory that's being brought from Europe. I don't know if like Antarctic climates are going to be in the New Jerusalem. Like I, it would be okay with me if it was like 65 and sunny in there. Um, but like all the glory, everything good that every nation has to offer is being brought into the city. That's why John is saying that, saying nothing of beauty will be lost. Even the beautiful things that you're experiencing today will be in this new city, will be in heaven. But they'll be a little bit different because they'll be incorruptible. They will never be able to be torn down. All the beauty of the old creation, which was destroyed, that's how the new heaven and earth come, is going to still be present, that there's going to be everything beautiful, everything holy, everything good is all here in a perfect and incorruptible way, and nothing can steal it from you. The openness of the gates, uh, the, the lack of night, the, the, the holiness of all that enters the city invites us to envision this place of complete holiness, invites us to envision this place of, of safety and blessing and good, actual perfection. Like that city we just envisioned in our mind, but actual perfection. You know what my favorite part of this new place is? That I won't sin anymore. Not what's there, but I'll never have to experience the pain of sin in my own life anymore. And neither will you if you're there. 
Think about the beauty that we're being invited into as the glory and honor of the nations are brought in, that, that John's also seeing this vision with all these buried gemstones saying all people, every tribe, every language, every ethnicity, every culture, every person everywhere that calls upon the name of Jesus as Lord is there. And we're all together with no pain and no fighting. Amen. <laughs> like, like that's something to get super excited about for me because I think of all of the, the limited work you have to put in to get into a fight with somebody today, right? Is it easy to get into an argument with somebody today, right? Like you could just tell them who you voted for, right? You, and, and instantly you're in a fight. You could tell them what you do or don't do, whatever. There's like this, this pervasive lack of safety that we feel, like this insecurity. That's all gone there. We see the perfect layout. We see the perfect light that we don't have to artificially light up anything ever again, that he is there. Evil is completely absent. Nothing can remove the peace security, goodness, and holiness of this city. Think about like a, a perfect party, right? Or um, has anybody proposed to their fiance anytime soon, anytime recently? No? I've been married 13 years. Am I the, am I the, the youngest marriage in here? No? No? Some of you are smiling at me because you're like, please don't call on me. I see it. I see it in your face. Like, um, it's okay. I'm not getting, nobody's going to get called on. I'm merely trying to illustrate something in our minds, okay? I see you. It's okay. Uh, think about how meticulous everything was. The lighting, the music, the person hiding with the camera like this so they could get that perfect moment. The table's all set. Everything's perfect, right? And all the work that you've put in, all the labor that you've put in to get to that moment. And again, that's a beautiful moment in your life. Think about all the work and the labor our Lord put in so that we could be there. And it will be actually perfect. Verse 27 kind of sticks out as a, a little bit of a, another contrast for us, like an exhortation for us to say, uh, nothing unclean will ever come into this city. Now, why does he go on to say that? Or no one who does what is detestable or who is false can come into the city. We ought to pause and consider uh, who will be at this party, who will be in this city. And he tells us, only those whose names are written in the book of the Lamb will be here. So all this excitement and, and now sweat uh, that's coming to, to illustrate the beauty and the holiness and the perfection of this, Verse 27 exists so we can say, yeah, that sounds great. Um, will I be there? Is, is this talking about me? And if by grace through faith you've put your hope and trust in Jesus alone for the remission of sins and as your Savior, yes, hallelujah, you're going to be there. We are going to be there. It's going to be beautiful. But if you're unsure this morning or you lack certainty in you, are hearing about this beautiful party and you're wondering, am I going to get invited? Will, will I be there? You don't have to be unsure anymore. You can have surety today. You can have a guarantee today that you will be at this place. And you don't have to prepare anything of yourself to be there. You don't have to be perfect and beautiful like the city is. In fact, Jesus requires you be the opposite you be poor in spirit, messed up and humble and knowing only you can get me there. 
I can't do anything of my own accord to get myself there. I can't clean myself up. I don't deserve to be on that invitation. Only Jesus can write my name in this book. So if you're getting excited about this place, but maybe, and we've talked about safety and security a fair amount today, maybe you're feeling insecure, like, I don't know if that's me. This all sounds nice, and this is kind of why I come to church, and is he going to wrap this up soon? I, I get it. And you wonder, I don't know if that's me. And it might be me, but I don't know if that's my child. I don't know if that's my parent. I don't know if that's my neighbor. Just like Joe said in the communion devotional, we have this beautiful opportunity to tell people about this beautiful, glorious, perfect hope out in front of us that we can bring people along with us too, simply by telling them, you don't have to have it all together. In fact, my king doesn't even like you that way. He wants you when you've got it all discombobulated and out of order, and you come and say, you're the only one who can fix this, God. You're the only one who can help me, Dad. And there's a beautiful promise in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, I won't turn anyone away who comes to me with sincere faith. If you come to me poor in spirit with sincere faith in me alone, I won't turn you away. And you can eliminate your insecurity today about if you're going to be here by believing with sincere faith that God's the only one who can do this for you. As we long for this place, as we long for this beauty, as we live to enter this city of God, sincere faith is what opens the gates to you. So we look at this layout of perfection and beauty. We look at the light and the absence of the temple because God's just there with us. The last thing that we see today is the life of the city, that there is beautiful, glorious life in this city. The beginning of chapter 22, the first five verses is what we're looking at, where John is uh, taken to a unique spot in the New Jerusalem, this high mountain, where he can see this river of life, where he can see this water flowing. And again, this comes out in Ezekiel 47, this comes out in Genesis 2, this is all throughout the the Old Testament, this, this river of life, this water that's flowing. And it's a little different, right, because in Genesis 2, the river uh, is, is flowing out of the garden. In Ezekiel 47, the river's flowing out of the temple, and now the river's flowing out of the throne of God, all of it coming to perfect culmination, saying the river of life has one source. It's all coming from God. God in the temple garden is flowing out. God in the temple is flowing out. Now God on the throne, it's flowing out. It's all only ever come from one place. The source of this river, the source of this life only comes from one place. Like Pastor Dan said, when you see the mountain stream coming down, that is where the people went to get their water, went to get their life. They die without it. This river, clear as crystal, bright as crystal, the source of it is God. And that's what this, um, this letter is meant to do for us. This vision is, is meant to do for us, to show us where all this comes from. Man couldn't put it together. God is the one who's been authoring it all along. God is the one from cover to cover of the scriptures has been calling us back into intimacy with him. And just again, as this this story begins in this temple garden and now kind of concludes in this temple garden having become perfected, that the Garden of Eden has now, uh, the, the tree of life that exists in the Garden of Eden is now here as well in the new Jerusalem. The tree of life is still here and its leaves are healing for the nations and its fruit is new every month and everything you could ever need is here. That's what all this is for. 
to cause us to look forward to something that can help us with our insecurity today, with our hopelessness today, with the pain and trial and trauma that we all experience today. Maybe the stuff that we haven't gotten over from yesterday or a decade of yesterdays. To look forward to this and say, am I going? And if so, it's a cause for me to shout hallelujah. If so, it's a cause for me to look ahead with a smile on my face and say, yes, Lord, I'm coming. Say, yes, Lord, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Right? So John's vision of the city of God, we see the layout of the city, we see the light of the city, and he invites us to see the life of the city, the relational life of the city, that God's people are all with him, and he is with us. The dwelling place of God is with man. Evil and darkness, sin absent forever. Never again in our lives when we're in this place will we experience that. The holy glory of God resonating everywhere, permeating through everything. Not just the great feeling you get at church on a Sunday and you walk out through the doors and you're like, here we go. I don't know if I can make it until next Sunday. It's full of life. Why? Because God is there. There's this expectant hope, this expectant desire that we should be filled with as we see this. We like to think of heaven, right, as this perfect place. It's beautiful, it's wonderful. As my wife and I were talking about the message yesterday, I was like, a place where there's no sweat anymore. I don't know if you won't sweat in heaven, but man works by the sweat of his brow. So maybe you just don't work when you sweat, or you don't sweat when you work, I don't know, right? But I'm grateful to not sweat, maybe. Like, I do that a lot. There's no pain, no tears, there's no sadness, and that all sounds great, but I think if we're honest, <laughs> it sounds kind of unbelievable, too. We're like, yeah, that sounds nice, but it's, it's far away, and as nice as that sounds, you don't understand how hard it is for me today. And maybe that's true. Maybe that's hard for us as we think of this wonderful place, as we think of seeing our loved ones once again, as we think of being reunited with our family and all these things. And it's, it's all things, though. And what's lacking from the description of heaven that I just gave is I think the same thing that's lacking from most descriptions of heaven that I hear. Heaven is far less about what we will do than it is about whom we will see. Jesus is there. The lover of our lives is there. The one who died for us is there. The one who's been waiting for us forever is there. It won't even matter what you do because you'll be with him. You'll see him. You'll feel the warmth of his embrace and you'll sing worship to him. And you'll be in the presence of the perfect one. Not a city that's going to corrupt. Not a thing that we do. But a person. Jesus. Power Jesus. That's what this is all about. That's what this message is all about. That we could see him again one day and he's inviting us in. So as the worship team comes back up to the stage, they're going to lead us in a song called Hymn of Heaven. It's a beautiful song to sing uh, at the end of a message like this. But I want us just to to allow this to sink in maybe just one more time, that we'll see him. That as John tries to describe the indescribable, we know we can't really feel it all out. The, the coming of this new Jerusalem transcends our experience right here and right now. And the greatest joy in heaven, the greatest joy in this new creation won't be seeing your loved ones who have passed away. That will be there and that will be great, but it will be face to face 
with Jesus, face to face with your Lord, face to face with the one who loves you more than anyone ever has, could, or would. I want to end with a brief quote from a, a pastor and Bible commentator named Tom Schreiner. He says this, if our hearts do not thrill at the prospect of seeing God and the Lamb, we need to know God better. We need to follow him more nearly, and we need to love him more dearly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in the name of Jesus, we say thank you today. Thank you so much that you've loved us. Thank you so much that you've blessed us. Thank you that if we are in you, Christ Jesus, as our Lord and Savior, and as your people, you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the high places, that you have called us your own, and we get to call you our own. And there's a day coming that as we encounter these difficulties here and now, as we encounter this pain here and now, there's a day coming that it will all melt away because we'll be with you. Like a child who's afraid of the dark, but when their parent is there, they experience no more fear. As we have our insecurities and hurtful histories and painful past and all these things that we go through, one day we're going to be with you if we've called on the name of Jesus alone for salvation, asking for our sins to be forgiven and to be in fellowship and communion with you again forever. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. We trust that you can make this true in our lives. It's for your glory alone, by your grace alone. In the name of Jesus, we pray all these things. Together we say amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.